the, the issue for leadership is to have relationships with people. You know, human beings are designed, are born to, to, to be relational. And so if you want to make a difference in people's life, you got to learn how to have a relationship. You are a warrior. You are the very best your nation has to offer. They're asking you to lead. Five, we need a bear cat. It's up to us. So 133, I need somebody that's got a visual of where the shooter is. You must be sound in mind, body, and spirit. 42, where's the officer down? I have a rescue helicopter that wants to land and help. This is the podcast that will make you the one. Copy running eastbound. The one that will bring everyone back. Troubling, we have shot fired, shot fired. Give me back up now. Because no one else is coming. I have an officer shot, an officer shot, 100 block of East Street. Suspect is down, suspect is down. This is The Squad Room. Hello everybody, welcome to another episode of The Squad Room. I'm your host, Garrett Slaw. I'm an active duty sergeant for a sheriff's department in Southern California. On this show, we help you, the modern warrior, achieve your full potential and fulfill your purpose as a first responder. The show is about being a better modern warrior. How can we be the leader this world needs us to be? And how to be the best version of ourselves possible every day? You must understand, part of the premise of the show is that you, as a first responder, are a leader. It's my firm belief that we are the absolute best our nation has to offer, and that we must burden ourselves with leading others if we are to save our country. We are the nation's modern warriors. Before we get to the interview, I want to remind you that you can get more information on this episode, including show notes, and links by going to thesquadroom.net. You can also subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher if you haven't already, and follow me on Instagram and Twitter at the Squadroom. Also, please join our very uh, growing, our growing Facebook group. Uh, just search the Squadroom Podcast Group, and it'll pop up. And it's a closed group, so it's open only to people who listen to the show, who are interested in law enforcement, or are currently in law enforcement, and. Uh, we can have conversations there, and I vet all the people that join the group. Uh, it's a great place for people who are interested in law enforcement to get some advice and for those of us with some time on to bounce ideas off of each other. My guest today for this episode, fantastic interview, author of a book called Leadership at the Frontline. His name is James Capra. James uh, was, prior to his retirement, uh, a DEA agent, and not just an agent, but uh, Jimmy uh, served as the chief of global operations for the DEA. He was responsible by the end of his career for 227 domestic offices and 86 foreign offices in 67 countries. Uh, Jimmy was uh, at the forefront of the cocaine uh, cartel wars uh, in the 80s and 90s. Uh, we talk even during the show, um, If for uh, those who watch the show Narcos on Netflix, he knows those guys and good friends with them and, and texts back and forth with them during the show as he watches. Uh, he's a currently a speaker, an author. He's raised six uh, successful children, uh, some of them also in law enforcement uh, currently. And he's got some really unique ideas on leadership. And it's unfortunate that I have to even say unique because uh, when he was talking during this episode, uh, he hit on a lot of the key points that I try to instill in my own methods and my own leadership. Uh, and, uh, for a guy like him, for a guy from New York city raised as he was, his dad was an NYPD cop and he gets it from his dad. Um, 
but this idea of being able to love the people you work with. And, uh, you know, you say love to a bunch of cops and they get all weirded out. But, you know, the the opposite of love isn't hate. It's indifference. And it's we see this in our leadership so often that they are indifferent to the people that they lead. And it's really unfortunate because when we love the people we work with, we can uh, we can really move mountains together. Now, in the background, you heard a bark just now. That wasn't intentional. You're going to hear a couple more throughout the episode. My dog seems to be quite uppity today. I don't know why. He's now cowering as I look at him. Anyway, uh, <laughs> there's some parts. There's some barking in the episode with Jim. <laughs> so, <laughs> for, uh, so you'll have to uh, uh, excuse my Labrador puppy for uh, not being able to control his excitement at this episode. So here's, uh, here's my interview with James Capra, former chief of global operations for the DEA. James Capra, welcome to the squad room. Thanks for being here. Well, thanks for having me, man. I really, really appreciate it. I'm honored to be on your program. Uh, some time ago, and this is my fault, <laughs> you sent me your book, Leadership at the Front Line. And uh, I really enjoyed it. It was actually recommended to me by a listener who's uh, in your family, uh, extended family, I think. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> Uh, and, and, and I dug right into it. It's a, it's a quick read, and it's, an, and it's an easy read, especially for those of us in law enforcement, because it's all about – there's a lot of cop stories in here. And yeah. You were a, uh, you were a cop. I mean, I mean, I guess you're always a cop in some ways, right? You never shed that. But, I mean, your career was in the DEA, and right. you retired as chief of operations for the DEA. Is that right? Right, yeah. But I want to go back, bef- like, before you got to – like the top offices of the DEA, DEA, I want to start with um, your first exposure to law enforcement, which was as the son of an NYPD officer. And I was yeah, hoping, I'm hoping yeah, you could yeah. tell there me a little was, bit about uh, that. Yeah, my, my dad was a uh, uh, Korean combat veteran, and, and um, you know, he did a lot of things that guys in that generation did. You know, the uh, World War II was over, Korea broke out, and he left high school at 10th grade, joined the Army, and went off to fight in the war. Came home and uh, actually uh, came home, got hired by the Port Authority uh, Police Department, and then a few years later joined the NYPD and and uh, started on, on 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 a beat in Midtown Manhattan squad car, and then he went to uh, Motors. That was that was and during that time, um, of course, there was no ESU, there was no SWAT. So if you were a motor officer in New York City, that was a huge, uh, just just a huge. Uh, elite uh, group of uh, I used to call it crazy motor cops and uh, so yeah my dad that was uh, you know as we got a little bit older but he he very early on he, he, he broke his uh, uh, coming on patrol off the Grand Central Parkway he broke his back and neck in just a horrific accident and uh, he would wind up uh, having to retire a few years later and we uh, we went from Queens New York up to upstate New York up to we went from crazy queens to up in uh you know here's here's most of us there's seven of us in our family six boys and a girl and we, i'd never seen a cow alive i never saw a cow before <laughs> before you know so <laughs> you you go to upstate new york and you're looking out the window screaming look at that and people think you're crazy but uh yeah my so my dad had a big uh big influence in terms of you know when i when we got older and and what what really i, I wanted to pursue in my life so what was that experience like then for you uh, growing up as a son of a cop, I wonder about, you know, I have a six year old son and, and I wonder about what his experience is going to be like. Yeah. Well, you know what, here, here's what I tell people all the time. Cause 
um, we I didn't grow up listening about stories of you know uh, shoot 'em up and bad guys. The the thing that was really impressive to me, and I didn't you didn't realize this. I didn't realize this till I got older, till I started pursuing you know the calling in law enforcement. Is my father would talk about um, men and women on his beat, and he would say things like. I, I knew everybody on my beat and they knew me because mm-hmm. I, I knew the bar owners. I knew the, he said, I know the prostitutes. I knew the second story guys, the hypes. He knew everybody and everybody knew him. He was all, all he was, they know him on a beat as officer Lou. That's just the way it was. And it was his beat. That was, that was his beat. And what the, the, the thing when he would talk about stories, he was really talking about people eking out an existence, trying to make their way through life and stuff. Well, it was interspersed every now and then with, you know, the story of a bad guy or two. And, but most of the stories were just about people dealing with stuff. And I often said one of the things that really dawned on me older, because my father would talk to us and tell us he's a great storyteller. Now, this is a guy that we think had an, a 10th grade education. And, and But one of the stories that always stuck with me was he was talking about how it's funny, things have changed, but they haven't changed. So Every now and then they'd be told, hey, listen, you got to round up the prostitutes on the street and blah, blah, this, that, and the other thing. And he said, we have to go and, and go around the, on the beat and say, okay, they got to, you know, they're, they're taking them into the local precinct. Mm-hmm. But what he would say, it was this, he goes, listen, he goes, I, we, he goes, no matter why they did what they did, why they sold their bodies, why they got to that place for, for that, he goes, they were women. He goes, and they should be always be treated like women. And then he then he'd look and he'd say, "You always treat people with dignity and respect," and that always stuck with me. You know, it stuck with me about, about what he said about that. You know, I didn't didn't really again. It, it was one of those things that he'd pour into us that it didn't become real or actually, I, I would say, it didn't produce anything till I got a little older and realized my dad cared about people. He he understood that people, you know, regardless of their where they were on the economic ladder or where they were on the social ladder or where they were in terms of what they were doing. They, they were still human beings and, and they mattered. And that, that whole thing when he returned and say, always treat people no matter who they are with dignity and respect, we kind of never let go of those things. So those are principles that you hang on to that are part of your foundation and that impact you when you, you know, you move into that arena into, into law enforcement or public service. So, um, so it was, a, it was a pretty, it was a pretty cool thing. Like I said, you know, I there were no, there was nothing like on TV. It wasn't like, Hey, there I was, you know, it's, it was about men and women that he dealt with every single day. And, and, uh, so it was a pretty cool thing to be poured into that way. Is that what spurred your own interest or what, what motivated you? Well, towards- I'll tell you. So, you know, so I, I, I'm a kid that, uh, there was six boys and a girl in our family and, and I, you know, our legacy in high school was most of us barely got out of high school. So we were good kids because uh, my father and mother wouldn't put up with anything. I just tell people all the time, you know, when in my family, my father's family came from Italy, my mom's family came from Portugal. So you, there was these certain expectations in our family about, about you know, what manhood was all about and what honor was about. And so at about 15 years old, my, you know, in, in my family, you're expected to be an adult. That's just what, that's just the way stuff was. Mm-hmm. But we did. We're terrible students, all of us, just terrible students. And I and I'm not kidding you. Barely getting out of high school. And I remember trying community college right after I. And my father would do this. Here's, here's my my father would say to each one of his children, you know, the, like I said, seven of us, in the beginning of their senior year. And none of us ever knew this till years later when we're sitting around talking about it. He would say, like he came up to me one day. He says, "What are you doing in nine months?" And I'm like, "What?" Oh, I don't know what I'm doing in nine months. He goes, I don't. And he would look at it and go, well, you can't stay here. That's just a matter of, he says, here's the deal. 
He goes, you, you, you graduate high school, you get a job, you go rent at a place, you're out of here. He says, you graduate high school, uh, you join the military, and you're out of here. Graduate high school, he says, if you start going to college, I can't pay for it. He says, but I'll, you can stay here for a little bit until you get out on, on your own. That's just the way it was. Because, oh, that was terrible. No, that's just, that's just the way it was, man. You just, hey, listen, it's, it's time for you to go. you got, you got to get out of the nest. Mm-hmm. And so I tried, I tried community college for a little bit, but, but uh, never went. You know, and, and so I came home one day. Well, late at night, I was washing UPS trucks at night. And it kind of was rare. He was up that night. It was about 1 o'clock in the morning. And I said, Dad, I, I can't stay here anymore. i got to get out of here. And so we sat and talked. And listen, my, my dad wasn't a, um, you know, in the book I said there were no Cosby moments in our house. That's a bad thing to do now, right? Reference Cosby. But <laughs> yeah, there was true. no, there was no, uh, you know, there were no, 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 hey, let's sit and talk type things. My dad wasn't like that. I mean, he was a tough guy, but he wasn't like that. But, but when I got home late, it was early in the morning after washing UPS trucks. He just happened to be up. And I just, you know, at 18 years old, this is so funny to look back and think, I, 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 I can't be here. I got to get away. I, I, don't, I don't want to be like some of these other people. And, and a few months later, you know, it's in uh, Navy boot camp. And so, um, and that's what I, I did. So I went to which great, best thing to happen. I fell in love with, with service life. I, I really did enjoy the, the, you know, you don't enjoy boot camp or anything, but I really did enjoy the structure and everything else. And when I got out, I stayed in the reserves and went off to college and um, still a little apprehensive about what I could and couldn't do and uh, met my wife the first day of school. We started dating two weeks later and I asked her to marry me three months later. <laughs> so I, I would tell my kids, brother, when I would go, hey, listen, that's not the smartest thing to do, but we, we had a long engagement and and um, about pro- probably about halfway through my my college years i started in business wasn't really sure deep down inside though i always had this hankering for law enforcement and um uh, so when i when my wife and i got married i transferred to another school in out of poughkeepsie new york marist and uh went from serving in navy reserves to the air national guard to going into the uh army um uh, became when i graduated became a military intelligence officer but before i got commissioned i I remember forget telling my dad, hey, Pop, I really believe that I'm being called into public service. I really believe that I'm being called into law enforcement. And I took every – and my and only as my dad could do. And, and, you know, being on the job for a while, you probably heard this before, but he – I'll never forget. Like, he looks at me and goes, you, you, you want to be a hero? He goes, you really want to be a hero? He goes, become a fireman. He goes, everybody loves a fireman. He says, if you want people to despise you, go into law enforcement, you know? And, and so we kind of, kind of never put two and two together, but it wasn't until I came on the job, but, but I had taken every possible test in, in, uh, in, in New York and was waiting to be called. I had applied to DEA and, uh, was, was upset to hear that, that DEA wasn't going to hire any more people and, and, uh, was a stay at home dad for about six months. And then a local police department, um, I got, I got called by the local Poughkeepsie city police department. I was supposed to start, in January to the academy, but Christmas Eve, DEA called, and and I actually went to the chief and said, "Hey, DEA called." And the chief was so good, he said, "Hey, you got to take it." He said, "But if, if you fail the academy, he goes, you got a place here." So uh, that was over 30, 30 years ago. So we we really um, loved every minute. I got to be honest with you, man. I, we we had a few moments like most of us in in, in that line of work do that we never want to relive, and um, uh, but for the most part, we I. I've had a blessed career, but just a really, really, um, just a blessed career with DEA. Been all over uh, the country and and um, been also all over the world. So, 
I wouldn't have never been able to to do that. I drug, of course, I got, we have six kids and a wife, and we drug them all over the place. You know, we, my daughter would say, would say, yeah, every time we had a big family meeting, it was either mom was pregnant or we were moving or both. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah, so that's how how things were, and and I enjoyed it. You know, you know, just uh, close to twenty eight years with the uh, with the agency, which just um, was just a lot, a lot of met some of the most. And work with some of the most dynamic men and women in law enforcement. I grew up in a task force environment. So a guy that taught me the most about um, Colombians and how to write search warrants was a sergeant from Huntington Park, California, who patrolled a 2.2 square mile area. and became He became like a big brother to me and he and his family. And unfortunately, we lost him to colon cancer some years later. But but it was one of the best experiences to this day. My kids still refer to him as uncle bill. So, um, yeah, what a, what a great walk, man. It's been a great walk. So when was your, uh, so you eventually got on with the DEA. Where was your first assignment? So I was, um, I got hired on in Manhattan and, uh, was there for about three or four months after I graduated, but I had put in for Los Angeles and the reason is what you put in for LA for. And I said, well, you know, we've been to a couple of places. I've made a very, very uh, close friend there by the name of Steve Azam, who's now the, the special agent in charge of the New Orleans Field Division. And we just, uh, he was just lived across the hall from me, not across the hall, but a suite mate of mine. We became fast friends. And, and he would say, hey, you should put it for L.A. So I called my wife, and she's always been like this. I said, hey, what would you think about going to L.A.? She goes, well, go wherever. And uh, so we got sent to, uh, sent to L.A., and uh, it was... Uh, it was a, it was just a, a blast, and I was real fortunate. You know, I was in on the tail end of the cocaine cowboy days um, when we were we were moving. I will say this: we were moving out from that cowboy mentality and narcotics to a more professionalized look in law enforcement. The, you know, including things like tactical awareness. You know, the, the whole nine years. There was a season in in narcotics overall that you were just you know everybody grew their hair long and. You know, I did all that, you know, who got, who got piercings and who got this and who got that. And, and we started moving away from that saying, listen, man, they're, they're you know, we, we need to be the, the professional outfit that we should be. And, uh, so I was in on the very tail end of the cowboy days and, and until it really started gaining a foothold about being a professional outfit. And I was also, you know, it was during that time, especially in LA when the Mexicans started, um, moving tons and tons of cocaine of the Colombians. And we, um, we came up with a with a, we started identifying that they were moving tractor trailer loads of dope across the country and this same crew that I talked about the state and local crew with the um, southeast area narcotics enforcement team that we work with almost every every day mm-hmm. me and our group uh, got together and we were tracking these trucks and lo and behold we wound up um, we wound up still to this day it's the largest domestic drug seizure in Silmar California we wound up seizing over 21 tons of cocaine and over 13, about 13 million in cash. And uh, it kind of opened up the eyes of the United States about how much dope was actually coming in here. But more importantly, we had been screaming for years how powerful the Mexican cartels had become. And uh, so finally, you know, uh, people started to listen and, and the whole dynamic of DEA started changing after that as well. So just to, had a great had a great career. From there, became a supervisor in New, Newark, New Jersey for three years. Went to um, headquarters, did about five years there, got promoted a couple of times, then went to Miami, Florida, and was the deputy sack there, one of the shortest tour, tours for 18 months. And then I ran, got selected to run the office here in Dallas, 
for about six and a half years. Just what a tremendous group of men and women. And then um, I got appointed to be the chief of global operations and, and did that for two years before um, we just said, okay, it's people would say all the time, you know, when it's time to go. <laughs> and so my wife and family stayed here. We were not about to move back up there. And so we, I tried commuting every four to six weeks, which actually got to be a little bit longer, but it was a great, uh, it was a great honor to, to serve in that capacity and, and, uh, got to meet again, a lot of dynamic people across, you know, across the agencies, you know, our partners over at the Bureau and Homeland Security and ATF, just good men and women who were trying to do the same thing for their outfits. When you were talking about L.A., what were the years in the, in the dope? What were the years? Oh, yeah, the I was in L.A. I was in L.A. from 87 to 96. So we, I mean, it was a flood of cocaine. We didn't, we didn't do, you, you didn't, most groups didn't do a case that had anything less than three, three kilos. And mm-hmm. that sounds ridiculous to a lot of people. But it, it was, when I mean flooded, it was flooded. And so, you know, and we worked with every narcotics unit in uh, Southern California, we, you know, from Riverside County, L.A. County, LAPD, you name it, Orange County, uh, San Bernardino, mm-hmm. just just some amazing uh, narcotics officers and uh, really, really did a lot of, a lot of great stuff. You, but when you look back, you know, what happened is this is L.A., the, the, our agency was run by, um, you know, predominantly East Coast people, and I'm not, I'm not slighting that, but sometimes that three-hour time difference, you try to tell people. In other words, when I was tracking, um, me and my partner, Bill Sherman, were, were tracking uh, tractor trailers that we knew were being used to move dope. You know, we'd call back to, to D.C. And we were young, man. We were just, I mean, but, but both of us had less than two years on the job. We said, hey, we think we got something here. And you, you talk to some of these senior senior guys. To us, they were they were real senior guys. And they would look at us and say, no, you're just lucky. And so you'd hit it all. So that the whole... The whole mentality of the agency back then was different. You know what I mean? So here are all these new guys that are saying, listen, th- this is what's happening. And, and people were thinking, you know, well, the same thing has happened for the last 20 years. And it hadn't. The dynamic of trafficking had changed. The dynamic of, of uh, uh, nations had changed in what was happening. And we were, we were young enough and stupid enough to believe, hey, we can make a difference, man. And uh, um, so, yeah, that's, that, that was just an awesome time. So you were, you're saying that it was the Mexican cartels by that point that were that were pushing. Yeah, it Colombian, Colombia, Bolivia, and Peru were still producing most all of the cocaine. But it was what, what they did is the Mexican cartels. The rise of what gave them so much power is they were. I used to call them. They were the teamsters for the Colombians. Mm-hmm. That's what would happen. So they used their trafficking routes both in terms of of moving people and marijuana. Their marijuana was still their big deal. And after we made this big hit, what started happening is they started buying into the dope into the cocaine trade and so now this to this day the mexicans uh the mexican cartels control all of the the with with the exception of very few most all of dope that's here in the united states they simply buy it from the colombians or the, or the bolivians or peruvians and uh they move it into they buy the fentanyl from chinese organizations and they move it into, into the united states so that's that they control they still control it we put a big dent in them but they still control a little 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 concerning though that that Colombia's production of cocaine seems to be increasing but i but i think that a lot has to do with that we we have not done a a good job in um talking with them in the past several years i think we're going to start doing that again but uh yeah man that was that what was going on and when we were trying to tell <laughs> when you're trying to tell people in position of power here's what's happening 
and they're so used to, you know, if you were if you were on the East Coast and you weren't working heroin, you weren't working. You see, when methamphetamine came up in Southern California, you know, people would call that kitty dope. And by the time I got to Newark, New Jersey as a supervisor, I go, listen, meth's going to come here and it's going to come like crazy. And people said, oh, you're nuts. And when I said, look, the Mexican cartels own that, no, you're crazy. And with a year in being in Newark, New Jersey, we're getting, you know, meth labs, both in Jersey and New York City and all the other stuff. So it's not that we were, it's not that we were brilliant guys. We, we kind of saw it birth and watched it watched it headed in in that direction Mm -hmm. uh you know there's a lot of younger guys that listen to this and don't have uh the the closest context they have to those cocaine days was is like uh narcos on netflix you know which is a popular show but by the way both of those guys are are really the real deal both javier and and murph are both tremendous guys we've known them for years and and so while murph and, and javier were down there chasing uh uh freaking what the hell is his name uh chasing him around all the yeah we were getting um we were getting their dope that was coming up through california and so it was funny because we'd watch an episode my wife and i were watching the episodes and i would text murph i go because we were putting it hey when you guys did this here's what was happening in in la um back and forth so uh really they i think they stuck to the the story pretty well but but a lot of it is uh, Murph would tell you is, is a lot of it is uh, what do they call it um, and entertaining uh, license. Yeah. So there's a lot of BS on there, but they kind of kind of stuck to um, th- that story. And that, in fact, did go on the level of corruption. But I will tell you today, the Colombian National Police travel all over the world teaching other units best practices in narcotics investigations. There's some of the some of the most you know, some of the best narcotics teams at all. They still have an issue in their country. They're still dealing with uh, narco-terrorists and, and stuff like that. But that nation has changed so dramatically, um, A, because there became a political will um, to, to, to make the change, and B, the people of Colombia said, hey, enough of this, man, or, enough of it. But they're still faced with a lot of challenges. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I spent the weekend with uh, a mentor of mine and a lieutenant colonel in the Green Berets who uh, – got his first combat operations there in Colombia, mm-hmm. and i didn't know until this weekend actually that he had he had worked down there on uh counter counter narco uh yeah. operations of course they were we, they were there uh well, i mean the military was there but i didn't realize he was there directly and he uh he had some interesting insights and you know um it's it's sometimes uh i, I remember growing up in that period and right. uh how uh pervasive uh, it was just on the news, even you know, once yeah. it hit, and how destructive it was. It was like you know, it was like meth was later on, and yeah. Well, the issue for them or, or anywhere else, and we see that now more and more in Central America, is corruption is the linchpin to be able to get things done, and and that's that's the reality of it. It's not so much as this that the level of corruption that was allowed to take hold uh, in um, Colombia and Bolivia, Peru, uh, it's unfathomable. And, and now you have a, a country like uh, Colombia, which is a liberal democratic uh, country that's surrounded by kind of almost left wing states that are moving more and more to the left. So you got to contend with that. Mm. And, and the same thing we saw in Mexico with the, the level of corruption in, in Mexico. And I've met with the I've met with the Mexican attorney general and I've met with the head of their their national police. And, and it's just uh, it's one of those things that's that's. In epidemic proportions, although they've 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 gotten a little bit better, they hate to be compared to Colombia because that's what happened in Colombia until they had 
the political will. And you still see the problems that we're having in, in Mexico relative to the, uh, the, the violence that's there. So, uh, yeah, those are real things. So you bounced around the country uh, promoting as you went. Uh, were these things that you, uh, the promotions, were they things you actively sought out? Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, so when I one of the things that when I when I speak a lot, I tell people, listen, I love my job. I, I mean, I love being an agent. I, I got, you know, I was fortunate to have men and women pour into my life and 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 professionally. Um, my my wife, uh, I, I'm very very blessed that she's the kind of woman that just uh, absolutely believed that it was my calling. So, um, and and she's the kind of lady that pulls me back when my head was getting too big and I thought who the hell I was. So so I recognize that, but I really did enjoy it. And then when it was time to to move up, you always I was always looking for the next challenge. And it always surprised me when I talked to guys. You went, oh, I don't want to be a supervisor. I want to be a supervisor. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but but. You know, there, there are guys that say that because they think it's cool. That's cool. Hey, listen, man, there's nothing wrong with promoting. There's nothing wrong, wrong with. We need good leaders. And and but the the issue becomes is, I always I always ask groups is why? Why do you want to promote? And so you know, because you get people looking at you like a chicken looking at a card trick, because they don't know how sometimes how to answer. Listen, it's okay to want to promote because you want the next challenge. That's a great thing. It's okay to want to promote because say, hey, there's a little bit more money in it for me. But if you want to promote because, you know, hey, I want to be in a position of power and I want to be the guy or the gal, yeah, you're already starting off on a bad, you know, on a bad footing. And there are, we run into men and women who are like that. They they, they promote, even at the first line, oh, i got to promote. And the next thing you know, they, they think they're taller, smarter, and better looking than everybody else. And I, I used to bother me, go, how did you, how did you get like that? What, why would you think like that? Why, why would you think like that? And for the most part, what you find out is they had mentors that were similar to that. Okay, once you're, yeah. once you're in control, once you're the boss, you're the smartest guy in the room. And, and what I would tell people all the time, you're not. You learn how to leverage those smart men and women that are around you. And so there's a lot, though, so you start realizing, uh, and it's one of the reasons I would write. So I would, I, would, I would be in a group or I would go somewhere and I would see something that, man, I like the way that guy or that gal handled that. And I had a habit of just writing stuff down, just, just writing one or two lines. Mm-hmm. And, uh, or I you know, would run into, like many of us, I'd run into um, people who had no right to lead, just were dangerous, uh, especially in this line of work. And you'd look at it and go, what in the hell are they thinking? And so I'd write, you know, write, you know, write stuff down. So as I promoted up the ranks, I used to tell my wife all the time, you know, I'd like to write a book someday. And I never knew what, <laughs> I never knew what. So as I'm finishing my, my, uh, so let me, let me just go back a little bit. What started happening is when I, um, when I was promoted as an executive in 2002, I started just on my own, men and women who I had the honor of serving with and who wanted to promote I would grab a hold and just sit with them. You know, it's, it's, we didn't do things like that in DEA typically. Actually, the guys and gals who were relatively good leaders did. And and I'd say, hey, listen, or you'd find somebody and say, listen, you really should consider promoting. Or when you'd hear have guys and gals say, hey, I'd really like to promote, you'd sit with them and ask them those questions and talk to them about, hey, the whole idea of promoting, the whole idea of becoming a boss isn't about being the smartest guy in the room. It's it's about taking care of men and women who are entrusted to you. And so I would talk to these guys and gals about that, and I would ask them the why, the hard questions, and I would tell them if you're gonna if you're gonna move into a leadership position, if that's what you want to do. And by the way, leadership is not is not the sole boundary of people with stripes. You know, we, leadership has to do with all of us. You know, as we as we influence other people in our lives. But 
traditionally, when we think about leadership, we think about stripes or stars or moving up the ranks. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you want to lead, if you really want to lead people, you know, and there is there is there's so many BS sayings out there, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, managers do things right, leaders do things, you know, it's, I'm like this, that's all platitudes, man. Here's the deal. If you want to be a, an effective leader, if you want to make a difference in your own walk and you want to make a difference, more importantly, in the lives of others and in your organizations, you have to learn how to care about people. You have to. And I would say this, and I'm a pretty big guy. I go, you got to learn how to fall in love with men and women who are entrusted to you. And so that started this thing where I would constantly, or at least in my sphere of influence, talk to men and women about. And the next thing you know, I was being asked to go down to Quantico to talk to groups that were coming in from the outside. Some of them were lieutenants and some of them were more, more than that. Next thing you know, I'm speaking on our side of the, to the National Academy classes that would come over and do a couple of weeks of narcotics. Mm-hmm. And uh, just being honest about about leadership, not you know, most of our men and women. You think about it, even in your own walk, most of our men and women are technically competent. In other words, they know their job. Right. They, they really do. They know their. Listen, most of them. You know, there's a few. You know, there's few shoe salesmen out there, but most people in in our career fields, regardless, you find out most of them are technically competent. Now they're all on different levels on the ladder, for, you know, as far as, far as a work ethic or what they're content with, but most of them are technically competent. And what you want to do is my, my thing is telling people about what it takes to lead men and women is that they got to know that you care about them. And it's not my brother. You know, I've had guys. Well, I'm, what is everybody gets a hug? No, everything is bathed in accountability, right? Everything is bathed in accountability. But you got to be willing. you got to be willing unconditionally to care about men and women. And it's not about you. As I tell people all the time, a good leader, he's not the beneficiary of good leadership. His people are. That's that's what it is. And if his people are, then his organization is going to get better. And that and that's what I started speaking. And I called it the heart of leading. You have, you know, hey, it's leadership at the front line. It's the heart thing, man. You got to enough of this stuff about, you know, oh, here's got to be like Patton. I'm like, what the hell out of here, man? What you got to do is make sure your men and women, A, that you're, you care about them, B, that they're technically proficient at their job and, and B, you, you care about them both professionally and personally. And here's where we started. I started siding with people. People started siding with me. I don't care what they do off, off, you know, I don't care what they do off duty. I said, you're crazy. I said, you're nuts. You've got to get to know people. You should care about what's going on. off. You should care if he's getting a divorce. You should care if there's a sickness in his family. You should care if he just doesn't feel like he's getting support from the department. You should care about those things, you know, because we only have a, you know, X amount of breaths here. So what do you say? Uh, on that topic, what do you say to the people who feel like they need to be distant from the people that they lead? Well, so I'll, t- I'll tell you, if, if I tell people all the time, here's, here's why some people never make it to being a great leader. And I'm not talking about, oh, my God, we worship them or anything. What, I mean, that their own ranks is, is because, A, their ego doesn't allow them. Because they think, oh, i got to be smarter and better than everybody else. B, they think they got to keep people at a distance and off balance. I actually had a guy tell me that, another executive tell me that. He goes, here's the best thing you do is you keep people at a distance and off balance. And so my key is, hey, the, the issue for leadership is to have relationships with people. You know, human beings are designed, are born to, to, to be relational. And so if you want to make a difference in people's life, you got to learn how to have a relationship. By the way, that doesn't mean, well, you know, I've heard this too, familiarity breeds contempt if you let it. You know, if, if you let that happen, young man, after I, I talked to a group for about a couple of hours and everything, he sent me an email. I was a chief of domestic operations back then. And he said, uh, 
hey boss, he said, could you be friends? He's going to be a first line supervisor. Can you be friends with your group? And I thought about it, I sent them back. I said, absolutely, you should be. But the difference is a real friend, you have to be their leader first because sometimes friends will lie to friends because they don't want to hurt their feelings. But we, we have to have people that are accountable to us, accountable to our organization, and accountable to the men and women that we serve in the public. And so you've got to be willing to look at that guy. Who's your friend? Who you go to choir practice with? Who you get to know their family with? When they're not, when they're not, hold, not just when they're not holding up their own. You know, you, you, you want to praise them all the other stuff. But if, if you got to be able to look at them and say, "Hey, man, you, you know, I expected you should be doing better." Hey, man, what's going on here? Hey, you see what I mean? Everything is bathed in accountability. So this whole notion, oh, you can't be people's friends. The hell, you can't. You you have to be their leader first. And so this whole idea, listen, talk to any combat platoon sergeant out there. My, my, my was fortunate that my, my military service pales in comparison to many today. Even my own son, who's, who, by the grace of God, survived three combat tours. And they'll, they'll tell you right away, these, the men and women that they're on the lines with trying to keep from getting killed left and right, they love these guys. They, they with, a, with that kind of brotherly love that, that is just an amazing thing. What, what do you mean that doesn't translate into the things that we do? That's not goofy. That's not that's not weak. And then that's a problem. We have this twisted sense that oh, the, this kind of leadership is weak. It is not weak, man. It is it is not weak. People to see who you are. How many how many how many, how many bosses have you run into who just you know uh, they, they don't want to get to know you? I'm not interested. Here, do your job. Do this that the other thing. Compared to 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 a leader that brings you in and say, man, how you doing? I heard you just had a wife, had a baby. And those things are difficult. And it, let me tell you something right now, brother. You pay a price to be that kind of good leader. You pay a price to believe uh, be a leader who believes he should serve people. Mm-hmm. And I think the whole servant leadership gig has gotten such a bad name because people think, ah, oh, that's weak. It's this, that, now that. No, it's not. You're never the beneficiary. The many women who are entrusted to you are the beneficiary of good leadership. You know, I was having this discussion with a group of other sergeants this week about can you be friends? Can you, you know, can just that? Can you be friends with the people you lead? And I, some were saying yes, some were saying absolutely not. And I took it as I took a different approach, and I value your input on this, but I equated it to a parent-child relationship. In that, I love them, I I very much care for them, I want to have positive relations with them, but my first obligation is to guide them and provide for them uh not to be their friend right i mean i got i got two young kids my goal isn't to be their friend it's to right. be their mentor he, right uh, he, here's here's what i would tell you right right from the get-go yeah be careful about equating your men and women as as yeah. children yeah 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 yeah, yeah they got to be careful with that's that is and, I, and right. I say that because we have a tendency sometimes i, I listen to a head of an agency refer to her people as her babies. Oh, I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, listen, when I'm not your freaking baby. I got issues. I got mortgages. I got everything else yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. So, so be, I, I, and I know what you're saying. Mm-hmm. I, I know what you're saying. I call it pouring into people. Mm-hmm. So my, our job, whether, whether I'm on the first line, second line, third line is to pour into these people, mm-hmm. to pour into them. Mm-hmm. And so when you, when you talk about friendship, we need to think, Oh, the guy that's coming over your house every night. And everything. Well, we, we used to have, you know, for my crew, when I was a first line is, that's what I did. I had, I had the most kids. So I, well, every once a quarter or maybe a little longer, depending on the weather, we'd say, hey, get together, bring your wife, bring your bring your kids, bring everybody over. We're going to throw some meat on the grill and get to know people, get to know your families. Uh-huh. It creates that kind of unit cohesiveness that, you know, that you, that you want. Uh, and so that's what, so if somebody said, were they your friends? You said, damn right, they were my friends. But yeah. they were also men and women that tomorrow we got to call, we got to go out into the arena again. Right. So that I, I want to make sure that not only 
not only from a professional standpoint that they're ready for fight, that at a at a personal standpoint, and this is where people I people will go, wait a minute, is I want them not only to succeed, it was in my heart to want them to succeed professionally, but I want them to succeed personally. I don't want it to fail personally. There's already too much stuff. That's what people are like, I don't care about what they do off duty. I don't care what happens in their personal life. As a duty, if they're broke at home, they're going to be broke here. And so we should be pouring into them. There should be some kind of example. I mean, life happens. People get divorced and everything. But but we don't have to – I would tell people all the time, I tell people all the time, what will you, what, what will you uh, settle for? How much will you put up with at work regarding – when you hear certain things, like I talk about what moral leadership is about, and that scares the hell out of people. You bring up the, the, the question of morality anymore, people, oh, here we go. People get scared. But I say, how much, how much will you put up with? You know, how, how much are you willing to put up with? You know, when guys are talking about in your crew that they're going to go to the local nudie club and they're going to do this, that, and the other thing, and they're all married and have kids, how much are you willing to put up with? And, and I tell people all the time, I jack. I, I tell guys, oh, hey, listen, I don't want to hear that crap. Don't bring that crap into – that's a cancer, man. Don't bring it in here. And I've had people say, you, you can't tell people that. I go, you damn well I can tell them. See, because I know him. I know him. I know his family. I know his children. We get together. We burn meat on the grill. And now he's out bragging about he's going to do ABC. See, he's headed towards the cliff at 90 miles an hour, and nobody's willing to get in front of him saying, dude, I don't want you to go over the cliff, and that's where you're headed. So, you know, that scares the hell out of people to be that kind of, kind of leader. But that's listen. That's part of it, man. That's you want to be a real friend. You want to be a real friend. That's what I'm talking about. Look at somebody in the eye and said, "You are getting ready to crash and burn, and, and we can't have that. I can't have you go there." Mm-hmm. And a lot. And most of the time, when you're able, if you have the moral courage to do that, and I, I I'll tell you a story about not having the moral courage. When you have the moral courage to do that. It's a wake up call for them. To say, "What am I doing? You know, what the hell am I doing?" And those who still continue to drive towards the cliff, you got you keep throwing up those flags. And the problem is sometimes, you know, you go you go in the morning and you see him burning at the bottom of the cliff, and now you got to do something. Yeah, tell us. I love stories, but tell us one about uh, an example of that. So when when and it really kind of follows suit when you talk about friends and everything else like that. So we I, I made it kind of a regular thing in, the, in my first supervisory group, and I was I was really blessed because I walked into this. Uh, it was a tiny group. I was used to working in Southern California where you called up a narcotics team and you got fifteen freaking seasoned narcs, a dope dog, and a helicopter. Everywhere you turn, that's what you had. And then I get it to Newark, New Jersey. I get in there and to my first group, and I have like six people. And I'm mm-hmm. like, I told this, the ASAC, hey, this is not a group. This is not even a squad. He goes, deal with it. Well, you know, welcome to Jersey. <laughs> so anyway, you know, we, we realized that the, the guys and gals, they're hardworking, scrappy narcotics guys. You know, we weren't, we, you know, we, we weren't bringing home, you know, uh, the Colombian cartels or anything, but really... These guys are hardworking, love their jobs. And so kind of as regularly as we could, and I'm not talking about once a week, I'd have everybody over the house, have everybody over the house. And, and you know, because like I said, I'm the, I was the one with the most kids. And or if somebody was going to host it, we'd make sure we'd be there. You get to know the wives, get to know the kids. And it was it was great. And it and it really did. I mean, I love these guys. Good and they were all on different levels, man. They're all good guys. Some were, you know, you know, some guys you had to tell to go home, you know, other guys you had to say, dude, come on, man. You haven't done anything in two weeks. So, uh, but that's the kind of relationship I had with them. But I'm coming to the office early one morning and I'm sitting there doing whatever the hell you have to do and administrative work or whatever. And, uh, I hear the guys coming in, I hear them chuckling and laughing and stuff. And, and again, just a great, great group. Then I hear one of the guys start talking about, and I stop and go, he didn't just say what I thought he said. And I start hearing him talking about, 
a club and I start hearing him talking about a dancer and how well endowed and I'm going, my stomach's just getting in a knot because I, I know this guy. See, I, I know this, this guy. I mean, he's been to my house. His family's been to my house and we know his kids and, and he's talking and the guys are laughing and all this other stuff. And, and I have to, now I'm the guy who's been going around telling people, Hey man, you got to get into your, you, you've got to keep people from going over a cliff. You've got to have the moral courage to step in sometimes, pay a price for that to say, dude, what are you doing? What are you thinking? And, uh, I talked myself out of it. Um, not saying anything I, with, with the thing, my, my idea was, okay, if he wants to ruin his life, he can ruin his life. And everything in me was screaming, you're a coward, Capra. Well, why won't you, why won't you, why won't you? And I remember, remember it took a couple of months later when I heard the same thing happen. And I, I had to contend with this years later. Now I'm not trying to be a humble Harry, man. I'm, I'm a, listen, I've, I've been very blessed on a job, but I've made enough mistakes and I'm a chucklehead sometimes, but I really, really let fear steer at the time. Well, you know, because really if I go grab this guy, you know, what will the rest of the guys think? You know, you get into that, even as a leader, well, you know, you want to think you're a tough, hardworking guy, but this guy is, he's headed towards the cliff and I'm keeping my mouth shut because I didn't have the moral courage to say anything until about four months later when some kind of conversation came up again I pulled him in and said, don't you bring that cancer in my office. And he, he was shocked because he didn't realize I, because see, I would talk about my family, how important my family is. I would talk about how important my faith is. And I did that for a lot of reasons. First of all, you guys got to know where I stand on almost everything. I don't, here's this is what I'm about. Here's what you're going to know. And, and, and I'm not, I'm going to do everything I can not to lose my family because I love my job so much. So I talk about family a lot and talk about a responsibility and our balance to our families a lot. And I bring this guy in and I finally said, and it was a little frightening first do, but I, I said, if I don't say something we're, I'm just, we're, we're, we know what's going to happen. And, um, so I did, I let him have him with both, bar both barrels in terms of, you know, I listen, and I know you've been, you bring this stuff in here. So this is not a locker room and I don't know what else that I said, a couple other things that I said, and he was mortified, um, mortified because we're close. He was mortified because I think it finally dawned on him. Well, this is not a game here. And, uh, fast forward, I don't want to get transferred, I don't know, six, seven months later and everything. Well, but by the grace of God, um, he didn't lose his family. And, and, uh, Every now and then, probably once or twice a year, I get an email from him, and uh, and he, 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 it's funny because he'll sign it to Prodigal. You know, he'll say, hey, this is probably family's doing well. And, and I've been, listen, here, here's why I tell that story, because I go, what kind of leader do you want to be? I mean, is, is, it, is it just important that we get for dope, you know, for dope costs, we're just getting the dope and the money and, you know, I don't care, go live your life? Or is, it, or is, is the reality of what I talk about is, we have a moral responsibility that we can take men and women where they can't get to by themselves. And sometimes that becomes tough love. That's why a real friend would look at somebody and say, man, you're, you're, you're failing. You got an engine out, you're spinning in. I don't want you to spin in. And, uh, and that's a tough thing to, to do because you pay a price to be that kind of guy. Cause there are, there are guys that look at any and tell you to go, you know, go somewhere. Don't mm -hmm. you, you have no, no reason to be in my business. And well, actually I do. And I do have a reason because I don't want you to fail. I do have a reason because you're going to be broke and then you're going to come here broke. So I, I do have a reason. And A, and, and A, here's what I tell people. Listen, we deal with people every day. They, I, I believe that they have a, just like the organization, they have a purpose. You know, the organization has a purpose and our people have a purpose, purpose in the organization, but they also have a moral purpose in life. 
and leaders should leave them with some with a with a level of passion to take them to a place where they can't get to by themselves. That's what we should be doing. That's where we should be investing time. That's where we take risks and in pouring into people. Mm-hmm. We pour into them every day. So I'm not talking about up with people. Everybody gets a hug. Isn't it great? We're all going to go out. I'm not the birthday guy. You know, <laughs> I, I know some guys who decided they and gals were going to be the birthday boss. Hey, everybody gets a birthday. I can't remember my six kids' birthdays. I'm not going to remember theirs. You know, so but I would tell people all the time. I want to know if somebody's hurting. I want to know, you know, if somebody had a kid. I want to know if somebody's having a tough time in their marriage. I want to know these things. Is there something, some way we can mitigate that? A lot of times there's not. Mm-hmm. You know, there's not. But but what's our responsibility? I tell people all the time. What's our responsibility? What's our responsibility to men and women? And everything, you know, if you read, and I'm, I have this extensive library like a lot of guys do. It's amazing to me that even the researchers who've researched companies that have done exceedingly well, without a doubt, every company, every major CEO that has brought their company to the next level when they've been interviewed, especially I love guys like uh, like um, Jim Collins, Kunz's and okay. stuff, their, their research always comes back to when you talk to these CEOs or you talk to these leaders, they go, these guys cared about people. They just they cared about these men and women. Yeah, they they also listen. They were also smart. They also knew where their organization was going. They also knew the market. They knew all those things. But what was more important to them was their was their people and what they did. They reminded people about what we were here about, why we do the things that we do. What? So, to me, it seems like you know, for for me, what I've learned and am learning. <laughs> It's constant is that it is, yeah. in, in order to lead other people, you have to have a pretty good basis of self-awareness, right? You, you can't direct others if you don't know where you're coming from or so or, or you can't give guidance uh, or uh, or be a beacon of light to follow me if you don't know where you are on that path. What are there things you did or that you used to enhance and and develop your own self-awareness i think it's important for all first of all you said it earlier you never stop learning this this is the one thing about a journey especially leadership journey no one ever is self-actualized and those men and women who write books and then said they are are full of crap Mm -hmm. like i'm i'm i tell people all the time i have the spiritual gift of criticism when it comes to reading authors because first thing i do is i'll turn a book over and i read about some guy who spent went from high school to college to graduate school. He worked for a Fortune 500 company, and now he's running around the country getting paid $25,000 an hour, so he tells you how to run, be leading, you know, leading people. I'm like, this is BS. What's his war wounds? You know, what arena did he serve in? What's, what's his experience? You know, what, what's his credibility? And that's, that's Jimmy Capra's issue with most people who run around leading people. So what's your damn credibility? And not like, you know, not like researchers who research and everything, but even, even to the extent there's a guy that's real popular who's running around. He, he wrote a couple of books. He's never led or managed anybody, but he's getting paid tons of money to do it. God bless him. Somebody says, Jim, you're jealous. I went, yeah, maybe I am. <laughs> so, so, cause I wasn't that smart, but yeah, what you, I think you have to be responsible for your own walk. And what does that mean? You know, what does that mean? I, say, I, th- I think you got to be willing to be a little self-reflective. And, and, and you have to, here's, I think what's more important, and this is where we get a little scared as leaders. We have to be willing to be vulnerable. And we don't like being vulnerable. And what I mean vulnerable with our people, you know, giving them, giving them the opportunity to, you know, to say, hey, boss, you know, I, I, you know, I, I'll, I disagree with something. I, I'm not talking about 
um, I'm not talking about disrespect. You said, what do you, what do you, what are you constantly doing? You constantly self-evaluating and here, here, I'll put it this way. Mm-hmm. I, I learned a long time ago, one of my biggest issues, um, in, in leading men and women is I have to be careful that I'm listening hundred percent. You see what I mean? I am that I am listening because if you and I are talking and a lot of times, especially if we're deep into a subject or there's an issue, what, what typically happens is as you're speaking to me, I'm starting to prepare in my mind mm-hmm. what I'm going to say next. Right. And, and what that does is I start shutting you out and I don't, I don't hear the rest of what you're saying. And here's a class. Here's what I'll tell you. And it takes a little guts to do it, but I'm a chucklehead. So I'll, I'm going to tell you this story real quick. <laughs> so I'm sitting there and one of my ASACs is a great guy. He got, you know, he sits down in front of me, and he has it. He's telling me about an issue that he had with a lieutenant from another PD that was doing a, I forget what it was, control delivery or something. And you know, and, and as he's telling me this, I'm starting to do a slow burn because I'm going, God, what the heck, you know? And he's he's literally while he's talking to me, what I didn't know is he's already told me what the issue was, uh, what the problem was, how he resolved it, and how how he he was able to patch things up with the department and everything else right mm-hmm. but but jimmy capper's sitting there halfway through and i'm thinking you we got to do this 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 and so when he was done i real i realized which is hard for me to do man you know because nobody wants to be a coward and i realized i haven't heard the last three minutes of what this guy and he's a talented guy was a talented guy mm-hmm. what he said i said now what do i do so I literally looked him in the eye, and I did this for two reasons. One of the hardest things I did for myself, because it, it really is, because uh, I'm like everybody else. You, you don't like to look in the mirror and say, man, I, you know, I see all the mistakes that you make. I see your blemishes. But I said, hey, Jimmy, you got, you got, can I ask you to do something for me? And he's looking at me with his head cock. I says, can you, can you tell me that again? Can you go over that with me one more time? And he's looking at me. Now, again, he's... He works for me. He's my friend. I know him. He's got groups of other guys. I said, Jim, I said, I got to apologize to you. I said, I'm getting so worked up inside. I'm trying to think, man, did you? Do? And I missed everything you said in the last two minutes. And we just started laughing. But here's here's why I tell the story. Because of that, I started becoming more aware of that. Now, I'm not saying I, I cured myself. I'd like to tell you I did. <laughs> but I became more aware of, hey, dummy, listen. Listen. And then be, before you open your mouth, listen get everything down so that's what i mean you know when you i think i think the older or the more mature you get on the job and that's not an insult but and more mature you get not just on the job but as a leader you know you'd say okay before i before i get all fired up let me listen to this let me hear what they have to say let me respond accordingly let me be careful that because I'm, I'm i'm a guy that takes me a lot to to you know, to get excited about things. My, my problem is always when I get excited, I kick the hell out of the cooler. And that's, that's, I, I don't, I've gotten better. I really did over the years. I've gotten better about it, but I had to realize that too. It's, Hey man, let's kind of t- tone down the whole emotion thing. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I think we're responsible for that walk. I think we're responsible for, and this is a tough thing, man, for, for, uh, you know, allowing those men and women who are entrusted to us uh, to, to, to also pour back into us. And let me give you this if we got time. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so when I took over the command here in Dallas, Dallas already had a great reputation for years. I was fortunate because I knew all the leaders here in Dallas at that level. And they were all, by their own right, phenomenal men and women. And so, but one of the things that I learned really early on is we sat together, and some of these guys had been my friends for years, and now we're working together. Um, I said, listen, I, I got to, 
I got, I got to say this one thing. I got if if every one of you agree with me on everything I say, one of us isn't needed. <laughs> so I say, if you all agree with on everything I say, one of us isn't needed. That's not what I'm I'm looking for. I kind of know the guy in the mirror. You know, I got to a point where I know that guy in the mirror. I, I'm pretty good at, at at most of the things that we're able to do. But I ain't got all the answers. So if I can't leverage you guys' expertise and experience, we're, we're, I'm never going to move this place to where we want to move it, which is where. And I, where I, I would point – wherever I was pointing, I would say that's north. That's where we're going. That's where we want to take these men and women to. Our pursuit should be in excellence. That means you cannot be fearful of saying if I want to go in a certain direction or something comes up that you can say, hey, did you consider A, B, and C? And, and here's, here's what I mean by that. So what I, what I did on my own – is when there were big major things that we had to do, whether they were operational, whether they were this human resource stuff, get these smart people together and I would say, here's what's going on, here's the issue, here's what I would like to do, this is what I'm considering. Mm-hmm. And then and then guys and gals on the staff would say, hey, ABC, the most quietest guy, the quietest guy was the smartest guy in the room. He never wanted to know anybody who was, he didn't want us to know how smart he is, but we always, we wound up, you know, Skip, Skip would always, people would talk back and forth, We and we we enjoyed each other. But Skip, after a while, would just say, hey, hey, uh, did you think about this, when we're trying to resolve an issue, did you think about this? And all of us would look at him and go, damn, man, that was awesome, that, that was freaking great. But that doesn't, that doesn't mean in the heat of things, when things are happening, in the middle of a battle in the arena, that when I go, hey, we're we're doing this, they didn't go. Well, now we're going to talk about it because there's there are times you don't have that. You got to okay, execute. Mm-hmm. But in the larger thing of leading and managing men, men and women, you got to be you have to leverage that expertise of those other people who, you know, you're pouring into them, but they also pour into you. You're always learning. Absolutely, you know, learning is a good transition to my one of my last questions here is, uh, you have had an event uh i'm not it was quite it was probably like four years ago i think um maybe longer now and it kind of went viral uh in a little way but it was your opportunity to speak at a senate hearing and um (laughs) a very impassioned uh testimony and i'll put a link in in the uh show notes for people who want to watch the whole uh, uh the whole uh well it's edited but the whole piece but my question was is i mean by this point you're the chief of of operations for the dea right you've moved through these these career paths and i want to talk uh, i want to ask about imposter syndrome right uh, and if you're familiar with that term and uh the idea that you know i i i'm just i'm envisioning the challenge or the opportunity to now you're chief of operations and you're now going to go testify in front of the senate and what's right. that experience like what was that experience like on the on a personal level yeah we had just um so the the senate hearing and then i did a house hearing after that was on what we we're doing in afghanistan and at the time we had a hundred of our guys in, Af- in afghanistan and afghanistan but i um and i was look forward to because i i always thought what a, what a high honor it was you know you testify in a freaking senate or the house it's that's pretty cool, but it's also, it's also a butcher shop, you know. It's also there, there are legislators who don't like what we do. There are legislators that are legalizers, uh, on and on and on. But I happened to be testifying in front of uh, Senator Grassley and Senator Feinstein, and we knew a question was going to come out about legalization. Now, mind you, again, this, the hearing is supposed to be about Afghanistan, and so Senator Grassley, in only the way he could do it, he said, you know, you're the senior career guy in DEA, blah blah blah, this that and the other thing. He goes. What is your opinion? I forget how he put it. 
uh, about um, this because he's going after the Obama administration about uh, um, you know the recreational drug legalization or something like that. Now, a great story would be, brother, for me to say absolutely ridiculous. But in my head, I'm thinking, okay, you you in that moment, okay, in that moment, there's a pre-approved script and and that the Department of Justice signs off on. Mm-hmm. And so there is a response, is a departmental response to that if they ask, which is, well, we, we have this thing that's set up by Deputy Attorney General Cole and blah, 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 this, that, and the other thing. And so as fast as the mind can think, I'm thinking about this and I'm arguing with myself, says, you gotta be, you got to be honest, man. you got to, first of all, not just for our own people, but what, <laughs> my dad's been long gone, but what would my dad say if I just, if I gave the bureaucratic response to what I know to be a huge problem in our country and it's going to get worse? And so it took everything inside me because if you first watch the testimony, you'll see me dance a little. Mm-hmm. You'll see you'll see me say, "Well, this that," and you know that cold memo. And then then I kind of you'll see me pause for a second, and that pauses that. Hey, dude, stop it! You you either gonna you know kind of kind of goes back to moral courage. And again, I'm not trying to say, "Oh, wasn't it wonderful?" I'm, what I'm trying to be the reality of thinking, my career can be over. And I'm not, I'm not just saying, and now I was safe. I knew that guy. I could retire. I could walk in if they, and so when I said going down the path of drug legalization in our country is reckless and irresponsible, the department went absolutely crazy. They went nuts. As a matter of fact, there's always a department rep- representative in the galley with us mm-hmm. and was sitting next to my deputy chief and she was kept telling him, he can't say that. He can't say that. He's not supposed to say that. And, uh, um, so it 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 you'd have thought I'd beat up Mother Teresa if she was still alive, <laughs> but to to the to Senator Feinstein, who I don't necessarily agree with on many many issues, um, um, people I think people miss this is uh, Grassley would do what Grassley stands stand as a as a Republican, but Feinstein did say I'd never I never believed it should be legalized, but she always believed it should be for medicinal purposes. Fast forward. Um, when I left there, about a week later, I got called over to the department. It's never happened before because I'm getting ready for another testimony. And, and during this meeting where they were supposed to reprogram me, and I say that jokingly <laughs> about what to do, I'm the guy that lost his mind in the meeting. I'm the guy that said it's bullshit. I'm the guy that, that looked at the, the, the presidential appointed legislative affairs guy and told him that the, the, the president's not the expert, nor is the attorney general on this. I am, and they're not listening to us. And I didn't say that to be big-headed or anything, but I figured I'm in. I'm in now. I'm in. But I, but I did. I said, Turn General's not the expert. Neither is the president regarding. We see this every day. Men and women who are patrolling streets in places like Washington, Colorado, they see the issue. We see the issue in places that where it's illegal, and you're telling us that this is okay. I'm not, I'm not doing it. Matter of fact, I think my comment was, I'm not doing your dance. I said, This is going to come back. And I told Feinstein this as well. I said, We're, you're going you're gonna to come back five, six years from now, and you're going to ask, how the hell did we get here when drug use and abuse skyrockets? And, and listen, brother, where we are right now, we lost 67,000 people to overdose deaths, and then we're finding more and more ties to marijuana, but we don't want to talk about that. Oh, my gosh, we don't want to talk. So it, it took a level of, uh, you know, to, to do that. Um, fortunately for me, my, my, my administrator um, was very, very supportive. Uh, when I went back, um, although she did get a call, I, I would find out about a month before I retired, she kept getting a call. I walked in one day and, and I looked at her and said, hey, is everything okay? She goes, they keep telling me how you embarrass the president, how you embarrass the attorney general during your testimony. And I, and I, I thought for a minute, I went, that's BS. I didn't, 
I told the truth. You know, you tell the, the truth about things. So, yeah, it was quite the uh, yeah, it was it, it was it was quite the thing. But I think we we're either going to be men and women of integrity, especially in our walk. I one of the things I would tell people all the time is, you talk to any patrolman about about marijuana drug use, what's going on. You talk to anybody working the street on in, in you know whether pushing a radio car, you talk to them about what they see. That's that'll be proof of anywhere, you know. And 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 uh, and I just still hold to that. I, and and the important thing is, just like leadership, is what what is it that we want to do? You know, what kind of legacy do we want to leave in our country? I say the same thing about organizations to leaders: is how, what do you want to? How do you want to leave here? What do you want? To, don't you want to leave it a little bit better? Don't you think you have a moral responsibility to leave the organization a little bit better off than we were given to? And I, I think that's important. So I, that's a thank you for sharing that. That was it's very interesting to see the backside of that because uh, you know just watching it, um, just watching the video, you the the pressure must have been intense because you can just you can almost feel it through the screen when you're watching it. Yeah, you know it, it is, and I start getting a little animated. I had to catch myself and try to try to calm down because, you know, it's you know we deal with in in our line of work, and I keep saying our line of work, even though I've been retired. I told that to group to an Alan PD guys the other day. I says you got to forgive me. I keep saying ours, even though I'm retired, but it's it'll always be ours. You know, we deal with evidence every day, and that kind of evidence has to withstand judicial scrutiny, mm-hmm. and and that's the kind of stuff we always have to go. Hey, listen, I'm telling you, the evidence points to this. Because there's so much BS out there, you know, it's, it's, and so we have to be willing to stand up and go, you're wrong and here's why. And I have evidence to prove that. And, and we have to be men and women of integrity, not just men and women, but our organizations, people have look at our organizations and say, yeah, that's that, that they're, they're holding that ground. They're holding that, not, not just that, that it should be the moral high ground and the high ground overall. Certainly. So before we uh, wrap up and like tell everybody where to find out more about you, uh, a question I like to ask all of our guests is: if you could teach every cop in the country one thing, just one thing, what would it be? You know what I I, I would tell. Here's what I would t- I would tell them. I would tell them the thing that I told my daughter and my son, who uh, went into law enforcement. Um, I, I would I would tell them a um, always never lose your compassion for what you're doing. Never, never be so scarred about the things that we see um, that you lose your compassion for for the for humanity because we see so much bad stuff every day. I mean, we almost we're almost to the point now we celebrate PTSD and all the other stuff. I know that's a terrible thing to say, but but we we listen. Try never ever to lose your compassion. My my daughter, one of the highest honors I had was to pin her badge on. She became an Arlington. Um, police officer and then became a detective and uh, she we just uh, anyway so as I'm walking down after they they uh, my wife and I are walking down getting ready to pin her badge on and this is what I did because I'm a, I'm a wuss the older I get I said I have to try to talk to you not as your dad right now okay, if I can if I can get through this let me talk to you as a fellow warrior who stands the line with you I said you're going to see the most heinous things that human beings do to each other the rest of society doesn't want us to do. I said, you've got to love them anyway. I said, people are going to lie about just because of what you represent. They're going to lie about you. They're going to say bad things about you. I said, you, you got to, you got to love them anyway. I said, you're, you're going to get a reputation, not just within your department and the community, but amongst the bad guys too, about who you are, what type of person you are. You don't lie or cheat or steal for anybody. And I said, I'm going to tell you something. In your own department, you're going to have some senior people walk up to you and tell you 
they're going to say, hey, kid, you're not here to solve all the problems of the world. You're not here. I'm telling you, not as your father, but as a fellow warrior, you are here to solve the problems of the world. The difference is you do it one call at a time, one call at a time, one call at a time. That's how you do it. Never lose that, that burning, those coals that burn in you. Never forget why you were called into this profession. Never forget that you were pulled into this thing, that you found that, that this is what, never forget that part of your job is to love those people out there. It doesn't mean a quiver in your liver, but to really care about those men and women that you're going to serve every day. And that's difficult because you're not going to like some of them. That's difficult. That's what sets us apart as public servants and warriors. That's what's, and remember that, that young woman, as I told my daughter, in the mirror. Remember when you stood in the mirror with the first time you were put your Sam Brown nightstick, your badge on. Because I remember when I did, when I got my stuff from Poughkeepsie City, stand in front of the mirror and think how I'm going to solve the problems of the world. I never forgot that. Don't ever forget that. You just do it one call at a time. I said in my 30, nearly 30 years, I've tried to do it one case at a time, one case at a time, and not lose my compassion. That's what I would tell everybody. I think that's great advice uh, and and really inspiring. James, thanks for being with us. The book is Leadership at the Front Line. Yeah. You, you, uh, I want to give a, a real quick second. You've got a new book coming out. Tell us about that one. Actually, we did three books. So Leadership at the Front Line, Lessons Learned About Loving, Leading, and Legacy. It's my walk in DEA. It's uh, 11 chapters. Somebody says, hey, how come it's only 11 chapters? I said, that's because it's all I had to write about. <laughs> my second, second book was uh, Eagle and Seagulls. It's a story I made up for my kids over 30-something years ago about about being set apart, not being a follower, and how to face storms in your life. The third book was born out of my son, who was a police officer here in Texas a few years ago, said, hey, Dad, what the hell is wrong with my, my generation? And my wife and I got together and said, why don't we write about our journey? And uh, that's the joy and, and, the, and the challenges of raising six kids in, in a culture that necessarily doesn't adhere to any kind of standards. And so we, my wife and I, who she's co-authored with me, wrote our, our story about having six kids and, and um, the challenges we had. Um, some of the kids had more adversity than others. Uh, they all had their own, and, and we had each of them that we wrote about. We asked permission to write about them and shared with them, and it's doing really, really well. And, and the book is, is, a, is kind of this hope thing that you can still make a difference in your, in your children's lives despite the fact that there's such moral relativism out there in our culture, despite the fact that we, we, we don't seem to have a kind of a, we're in a moral free fall, uh, but you could still, you can still raise kids uh, of hope and promise that make a difference in their own walk. And where can people find that book and find out more? Yeah, about it's you? on, it's actually, you can find it at uh, Barnes and Noble. It's on Amazon. All three of them are on Amazon. They can go to our website, uh, which is frontline leadership group. Dot com um, and it's it's you'll see on the books page we have actually the introduction to our third book you can you can downlink you can download that on there to see get a primer of what we we write about and then uh, and then my what I do now and I have done for since I retired is I did a lot of things <laughs> differently than other guys and I've been coming around the country speaking and teaching on on you know having a heart to lead at the front line and talk about how to lead and develop leaders across generational boundaries. And it's just been a blast. It's been, we, we've been, we've been really blessed and, and, uh, uh, and fortunate. And I just, like I tell people, I've got a lot of words, so I got to be careful. <laughs> <laughs> uh, James, thanks for being with us. Uh, I'll put show notes or I'll put links in the show notes for all of those books and the, how to find you at frontlineleadershipgroup.com in case uh, people are driving and can't find it right now. They just go to the squadroom.net to get all of that. Yeah, man. 
Thanks for having me on the show, brother. I really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, James. Thank you. All right, thanks for listening to The Squadron. If you like what you heard today, if you got something out of this conversation, please share it with somebody. Grab their phone, hit subscribe for them, and uh, tell them about this show. Send them a link to the website. Do something to get them get this information in front of them. This idea that leaders need to care about their people and love them needs that we need to make that grow. And I think that we will have a much more successful profession if we can do that. If we can get over the machismo uh, and and the in it for themselves kind of attitude that we sometimes have to encounter. Uh, also, please leave a review on iTunes if you can. That helps us spread the word of the show. We have a mailing list. Uh, stuff is going on on the mailing list. Uh, to keep up to date, you can text the squad room, all one word, to 44222 to get signed up for our mailing list directly from your phone. And also, you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter, at the squad room, to find out when new episodes are up. And, of course, that Facebook group again. So check that out. All right. Until next time, take care of each other and stay safe.